Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. to all our fantabulous story-shaped listeners. It's Thursday once again, and we're delighted, gobsmacked and slightly starstruck to welcome today's guest to the podcast. We're speaking today to the one, the only, the brilliant M.G. Leonard, and we are beyond excited. (laughs) M.G. needs no introduction to listeners of this podcast, but it falls to me to try to give her one anyway. Uh, She is the acclaimed best-selling author of the Beetle Boy trilogy, the Adventures on Trains series, which now numbers six books, co-written with the fabulous Sam Sedgman, and the wonderful Twitch series, which so far consists of Twitch and its sequel, Spark, about a 12-year-old bird spotter with a penchant for solving crime. She has written picture books, including Tale of a Toothbrush and Rex the Rhinoceros Beetle. And this Christmas, her audiobook, The Ice Children, is available through Audible for users of that platform. And that's only some of her incredible output. MG has worked as a band manager and as a digital producer with Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, the Royal Opera House, the National Theatre and Harry Potter West End. She's a co-founder of Authors for Oceans, which aims to reduce the use of single-use plastic in the book industry and in general. Um, My only question for her really is, when do you sleep? (laughs) What an incredible (laughs) person. And we're honoured to welcome her here to the podcast today. Um, We can't wait to talk to you about the stories that shaped you, MG. And thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. So welcome to Story Shaped. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's fantastic to be here to talk to you today. Uh, Your books, the Beetle Boy trilogy, are, are... Kind of when I was starting off my my own career as an author, uh, not I suppose not that long ago, but a few years ago, your your trilogy or your 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 Beetle Boy books were one of the first sort of that I, that I really read and that really inspired me and gave me a sort of an idea of how fantastic children's books could be. Um, so I'm thrilled that I have them here, waving them around. I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. Um, it's it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, so we really hope you'll enjoy chatting to us about the stories that shaped you and about your own stories. And we can't wait to get started. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. I'm so glad you enjoyed the Beetle Boy books. I, I yes. still um I I think everyone is particularly uh attached to their debut because it is the story that you sweat over for well, for me it was over a decade. Uh, and it's a weird book. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's very strange. Um <laughs> and I think it's it's a Marmite book. People either really love it or they're like, oh, creepy crawlies hate it. Um, and, uh, but I am very proud of it. <laughs> you should be, rightly so. It's amazing. I, I found it personally inspirational too when I came to write my own um, The Starspun Web because there's a character in that who has a, a pet um, tarantula. Now, I didn't do the, the decades worth of research into tarantulas that you did into Beatles <laughs> to write your Beetle Boy trilogy. But I did have you in mind as I wrote the book going, yeah, you know, people are too scared of, of insects and arachnids. And I think it's time that we, we try to put them in a positive light in books. Well, not anthropomorphizing them, you know, keeping them as the insects and the creatures that they are, um, but giving them a, a positive spin, because that's exactly what I think you achieved really well in the Beetle Boy trilogy is, um, you know, Darkest and his friends. Uh, they they just interact so well with the beetles and they're, they're almost as well, they are as important as any human character, but they're, they are very much beetles all the way through. Um, and I love the amount of research. I mean, it, it must have taken, it did take you a very long time to do the research for that. Can you tell us about the research you did? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I always feel embarrassed because if I had known how long it was I may not have done it. <laughs> oh my but, goodness. Uh, I, because I used to be insect phobic um, and one of the reasons why I decided to write about beetles was I was trying to overcome my phobia and I looked at all of the insects that terrified me and every single one terrified me I found beetles to be the least scary like that was my (laughs) point was I'm not scared as much of these ones as I am of all the other ones and I like terrified of moths daddy long legs even butterflies like really scared of everything (laughs) Uh, and so beetles because 
and this is how ignorant I was, I didn't think they could fly. So I didn't think they could come at me like a moth can or surprise me like a wasp can. Um, obviously, because I was an idiot, I didn't know that they have four wings. Uh, so I thought it would be a good place to start dealing with my phobia. And I think inside all of us, we have like this a pendulum that swings from biophilia, uh, like the love of nature and biophobia, the absolute terror of nature, because obviously deep in our DNA is the fact that nature can kill us <laughs> and we are wary of it. So Very true. I kind of, my, my pendulum was at biophobia uh, when it came to insects uh, and all arachnids and creepy crawlies. And uh, I started trying to learn about beetles because I didn't want my kids to inherit my, it was quite an extreme phobia. I mean, I really did scream and run from pretty much everything, including houseflies. So uh, I, I started with beetles and it was, and I've used this analogy a lot, but it was like falling down a rabbit hole into Wonderland. I had no concept of how ignorant I was. And I thought if there was a great kids book when I was a kid, that showed how amazing and interesting beetles were, I might not have developed this really wild phobia because I, I gobbled books as a child and insects are constantly used to suggest filth or dirt or otherness mm -hmm. or strangeness or fear or like, you know, always used in that. It's a very cliched trope. And I realized that I couldn't actually easily call to mind books that countered that narrative. Uh, and I, as a mother, I was like, this is outrageous. Someone needs to do something about this. And of course, you don't have much choice but to try and do it yourself. Uh, so I thought, well, I will I will research beetles. Now, I am now very good friends with the head coleopterist at the Natural History Museum, who once said to me when I complained about how much there was to learn about beetles, that if from the moment you were sentient at about the age of three, you only studied beetles till the moment you died and you lived a long, healthy life of a hundred, it would be impossible for you to be knowledgeable about every single species of beetle that exists on the planet because wow. there are over 400,000 known. So basically it's an endless topic and we That's are amazing. Yeah, about so much. So I did about six years of research <laughs> before my brain had enough information to start germinating a story and the research came first because it wasn't always going to be a story to begin with it was to deal with my own uh, phobias and did you cure your phobia yes i have you pet did. beetles and, oh, like, yeah i was going to say you, you have pet beetles now that's incredible <laughs> yeah. yeah and i yeah. and i well i have to keep handling them every day because otherwise like ingrained phobias that you've had ever since you were a child even though you can deal with them uh, they creep back because like there's knee-jerk sure. reactions and mm. yeah and I, I have to work very hard to remind myself I can pick up a moth like you know if I haven't picked up a moth for a year and it gets to moth season and there's one dive bombing me my instinctive reaction is to hide under the duvet <laughs> but then I have to remind myself no 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 you've you've held tarantulas you've held spiders you've held you can pick up a moth come on like I have to remind myself so uh, I think we're always works in progress, um, but yeah, it's it's, a no, it's the only way of doing it. I can't, there's a certain type of spider that comes in at the winter that's like slightly bigger than a 50p piece uh, that runs very fast, a huntsman. Uh, I can't handle the speed and mm. the change direction of those. Uh, and like, I will let them run away and hide, but if I can see one, I will have to try and catch it. And that does lead to comedy scenarios where I end up drinking <laughs> a bit. So I won't have any, I won't allow anything to be killed. So, um, so I'm not entirely over it. I don't think anyone ever does get over a, a, an intense phobia, but mm. I'm definitely much, much better than I was. I now get very angry on that. What's that? Um, I'm a celebrity program where they all oh, do yeah. Oh, I hate that anyway. But yeah, when they use yeah. animals as, get, yeah, yes. Yeah, I get very yeah. upset on behalf of the insects yeah. now. Whereas no, I shocking. used to, yeah, I used to yeah. be like, oh, how awful for the human. And now I'm like, no, good Lord, how awful for the insects. <laughs> with some of those celebrities, I wouldn't want to be in a cage with them either. So no. I feel sorry for the insects for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's so interesting that your impulse to get over your phobia was to kind of dive in and learn everything there was to know everything you could know about um, 
Beatles. And it reminds me of we had um, the writer Debbie Thomas on the podcast recently, and she had this lovely quote, which is you can't hate a person whose story, you know, it's like you can't hate a species who's when you yeah, know all about them. Yeah, about when them. you when you, when you know their story. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah I mean, that's really true. I think fear and ignorance are utterly mm. related. Uh, and the thing that so I have lots of cod theories about insects, but like one of them that I developed whilst I was doing this research, and yet no one has ever qualified this right. So it's an M.G. Leonard fictional special. But I learned that beetles have spiracles in their exoskeleton. They have these tiny holes uh, and uh, they respire because uh, air passes through their exoskeleton, through these holes, through these tiny tubes and oxygen is absorbed from that air as it passes through the insect. And they have the capacity to open and close these spiracles so they can trap air inside themselves and slow down their metabolism. Uh, and they can actually exist underground for huge periods of time off the oxygen that they've trapped inside them. So when I learned this, I realized, oh, they don't respire. Like if you see a mouse, it breathes. If you see a horse, it breathes. You can tell if a horse is cross or chilled and you can tell if a mouse is frightened you can tell by looking at the way that they're breathing if it's accelerated breathing they're you know and that's how we read each other that's how we read mammals and I think it's why we like to have mammals as pets because we can read them but beetles bodies don't respire they don't move in and out with the breath you cannot tell if a beetle is upset or frightened or any of those things by the way it breathes because it doesn't respire and I also thought that actually you know, one of the things that always gets me about insects is how their ability to startle you. And I think ingrained in me somewhere is the thought that if it doesn't breathe, it must be dead. And then if it moves, that's terrifying because dead things should not move. That's like an ingrained. I never thought of that before. Yeah, yes. that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. I basically think that we think insects are zombies, like, and that <laughs> terrifies us, and we run away from zombies because that's sensible, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've had we've had zombie goldfishes from O'Hara, so surely we can have zombie beetles from M.G. Leonard. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's amazing. That's a really good theory. I mean, you've done two PhD level, you know, worth you know, six years is two PhDs studying beetles. I mean, so you're qualified as anybody to write or to think to know to, to have theories about beetles that's really interesting beetle doctor mg leonard beetle doctor absolutely <laughs> like I'm, i wouldn't say i'm phobic of, of insects i I'm, i tend to be like one of those you know little witches that like have cobwebs everywhere that like to leave their spiders peace like if i see a spider i just get yeah you can do your thing i'm gonna do my thing i'm not gonna interact with you you go go for it find a dark corner stay away from me um but I, I don't like I don't like hurting them I don't like killing them um if, if they have to be caught they have to be caught but I like to do it humanely and um, but the one you mentioned the huntsman the one that goes really fast that does that gives me the ache yeah that's really because the speed is just it's just too much but I, I just let them go where they're going and I just ignore it and pretend it's not there <laughs> but I love I love where your books gave me because I would have had no knowledge of beetles I still don't really I'm not going to claim that I have my knowledge of beetles but certainly I look at insects in a different way now Mm -hmm. um, um, and that's all down to you so thank you you've definitely and you know the point of our podcast is to talk about how stories can shape us I mean like is there a better example of that than, than you you've shaped your you've reshaped yourself through your yeah, own story exactly <laughs> I mean that's incredible that you've, you've really just taken something that scared you you've learned about it and you've created such an amazing work of art or th you know three three works of art out of out of that it's it's go you bravo that's amazing <laughs> and you've helped Thanks. other kids you've helped other people and including me but also all the kids that have read your book I mean imagine all the the effect that you've had on 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 helping them to sort of take better care of their natural environment because yeah, and I think of... the twitch and the spark books do that too as well they really like connect the read like because like a character like twitch is so tuned into his environment um and then you've got another character jack who's not as tuned into the environment so for a child I think whatever end of the spectrum you are on there's something there for you yeah the relationship between those two boys is really special like it's really important uh it's funny because uh when you're writing books you're often trying to explain to your editor before you've ever written anything what your plan is um and uh twitch everyone loved twitch and i was like oh the second book in the series is not from twitch's perspective at all i mean he's in the story but it's completely from jack's perspective i loved that yeah but my editors were like oh no everyone loves twitch we want more twitch and I was like twitch is in the story but you have to understand that when I go into schools and kids have read twitch I always get asked questions about jack 
like mm. what happens next like because jack starts twitch as a bully he's mean mm. you know um and one of the main uh things that i address in that story is that uh all kids are capable of bullying behavior it doesn't make them a bully a bully is not like you you know it's not it's not a, a thing that you are forever. It, context is really important. Uh, and Jack is a bully because he's new and he doesn't yeah. have any friends and he's trying to, he's, and trying, he's, to, and yeah, like he's, he's trying to win friends by picking on the weak kid, right? And the weak kid appears to him to be Twitch. He discovers in the journey of Twitch that actually Twitch is not weak at all. Uh, and he was mistaken. Um, but then the kids who've read that are really curious about Jack. They know who Twitch is by the end of that book. So I really wanted the second book in the series to answer those questions and show them Jack's view of the world. And he's struggling with his relationship with Twitch because Jack is an alpha kid and Twitch is a beta kid. Um, but in the context of the Twitchers, their birdwatching group of friends, Twitch is the leader, which is difficult for Jack because that's not, he's not, used to not being the leader but he really wants to be friends with twitch so there's this struggle that they don't know each other they don't they don't haven't known each other since they were tiny kids they're not confident in each other and i really wanted to explore the next step of the friendship because um a lot of books you don't you don't get the opportunity to do that and uh walker very i'm very grateful that eventually <laughs> they gave in and went okay yeah right we get it it works <laughs> and me too from the opening page i was like oh okay this is about jack and i was like oh okay this is about jack this is really interesting and i loved how like you're in jack's mind and so you can really empathize and feel how he's become a bully because he doesn't quite know his place in the world, especially he doesn't quite know his place in Twitch's world, which is like a, a world that's very connected to nature and that Twitch has this like bird watching obsession and Jack doesn't, he hasn't found his thing yet. No, exactly. And like he sees a bird and he's like, well, yeah, whatever. small and brown. Yeah. This, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like, it goes you know. treat, yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. comes from like, cause it's really interesting. I think every character that a writer creates is born from them and their own experiences. So there's part of me is Twitch, but part of me is also Jack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, when I was a kid, uh, I moved from London. I think I must have been like eight, seven or eight when I moved from London to uh, a little village. And I didn't know it at the time, but my dad had gone bankrupt and we did a runner. We left a rental property and just ran um, and ended up in this very cheap farmhouse in the middle of Hertfordshire. And I, I'd never, I didn't know what, I'd never been in the countryside. Um, I called cows moo cows because they were <laughs> and like, kids at the village school laughed at me. And I remember arriving there and uh, feeling quite confused by stuff they all seemed to automatically know. And then uh, we did this uh, nature hunt, like a ramble. The, the whole class was given like a sheet of paper and on it were things like an acorn and a, a beech leaf. And, and you had to go out uh, uh, with the class and you had to hunt for all these things and find them. And I didn't understand. I literally looked at this sheet of paper and it was saying a beech tree and an oak tree. And, and I was like, I don't understand, like a tree is a tree. I thought it was one thing. I didn't know that each tree has unique leaf shape. I didn't know how to recognize what a tree was from the shape of the leaf or the, I had, I did not know that there was more than one type of tree. I genuinely thought trees were just trees. So on this nature hunt, I found nothing. I only knew what an acorn was because of Winnie the Pooh and the fact that Piglet ate acorns, right? That is it. <laughs> That was my only thing that I, you know, but I didn't know where to look for them. I didn't know that they grew on trees. I didn't, I did literally had no nature knowledge at all. Uh, and I felt really stupid and, oh. a lot. and I didn't want to admit mm -hmm. that I didn't know something that seemed so fundamentally basic mm -hmm. that everybody else knew, but none of the kids in London knew it, oh. you know? So I, I, yeah, I, I felt that weirdness that Jack feels uh, obviously he's uh, quite a few years older than I was but I think that makes it harder if you're in your early teens and you don't know stuff you certainly don't admit to it yeah, <laughs> yeah.
Well, so you, you brought a real empathy to that character because you could you could really see it in your own experience. That that always helps to write rounded characters, doesn't it? When you when, when you see them in their totality and in and in, in the three dimensional that they are. Gosh, yeah, I haven't actually read um, Twitter Spark yet, but I'm, they're on my on my TBR list, so I can't you wait. Now. I'm really really intrigued by those. <laughs> I've recommended them to so many people. Expect your book sales to spike. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm grateful. <laughs> Let's hope anyway. But I guess we should. I guess we should get to the point of our, <laughs> of yeah. our podcast. Um, because yeah, it's like I could listen to you talk about um, about your books forever. I think we'll probably we'll probably come back to them as well. But I'm just looking at your. Um, May has this great T-shirt on. It says bookworm. Got Matilda on it. And that mention you had of like knowing what an acorn was through Winnie the Pooh. Through Winnie the Pooh, yeah. So can we ask you that question? Are you story shaped? And what are the earliest stories that you remember having an impact on you? So I really uh, was an avid reader from a very early age, but I really struggled with writing. So I wasn't, I could, I was, well, my parents used to say I was a, a liar I used to make up stories all the time <laughs> I was constantly being accused of being fanciful tall tales liar etc um, I was very verbal um, but I was not dexterous my hands and just didn't want to write anything neatly so uh, I really I wasn't a writer but I was definitely a reader and I read absolutely everything but if I was a, a stick of rock and you cut me in half <laughs> and you looked at the writing right at the core of my very uh, being, you would find uh, The Secret Garden mm. and The Twits. And I kind of think that actually... If oh, that's such a perfect anything, combination, really, for your work, I think. Yeah, well, exactly. I think you can tell it in my work because when I read The Secret Garden, uh, and this is the thing about uh, really great books, is that when I first read it, I thought Mary Lennox was objectionable and horrible. Uh, I thought Colin was a whingy, uh, awful, sickly thing. Uh, and Dickon was, hello, my first ever yeah. literary crush. Oh, you, oh, <laughs> God, <laughs> Dickon was a god. <laughs> you I agree loved with that, him. I read that book for him. I just yeah. wanted to know. And to be honest, like, uh, I didn't hard identify with Mary Lennox because, you know, it's a very colonial book now and it's very mm. problematic if you read it now mm. but if you take all of that out of it and you just mm. focus on the kids experience and their relationship with nature actually uh it's it's incredible because you get this girl that's got no relationship with the natural world at all which I had none when I was a kid uh who discovers a garden and it's a safe place for her to be in this horrible world that she finds herself in and then there's this boy with this knowledge that shows her that anyone can learn to have a relationship with nature. And then of course we see that relationship with nature heals Colin uh, and that it's restorative and it's uh, really good for you to do those things. And as a kid who had no relationship with the natural world, I actually read The Secret Garden before I moved out to the countryside and didn't really register that aspect of it. Um, and then I read it again when I was uh, probably about five or six years older uh, and felt a real yearning for a secret garden. Like I felt like I, ne I needed one or I wanted one. And instead of just being in love with Dickon, which let's face it, I've always been in love with Dickon. Uh, I actually, <laughs> it was the garden that I wanted. I wanted the safe space that I could go and be at peace and heal and learn and not, the world felt very, aggressive to me I didn't have the easiest of upbringings and um, then when I grew up even further when I was in my early 20s and I was not a healthy human being I smoked a lot and drank a lot and partied a lot and uh, uh, I developed depression but not like like a, a searing kind of depression that really destroys you but like a constant low level just despair at existence I didn't see the point much of anything and somebody I can't even remember who said oh why didn't you look to get some lavender the smell of lavender is meant to be uplifting and I was like is that a perfume and they were like no it's a plant <laughs> you grow it in a window box out and it might help um so I got a window box and I put lavender plants in it uh, and 
I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed touching it and I enjoyed the smell of it. And I like, it was my first step. And I remembered the secret garden when I did that. Uh, and so I read it again and I got the message of that connection between growing things and connection with nature and positive mental health. Uh, and so I went wild and bought another pot plant and then it began <laughs> what has turned into a massive journey because in buying more plants and slowly learning how to look after them, they of course attracted insects, which I was terrified of. <laughs> Uh, and I had to really kind of like I used to go out with like gardening gloves on and like fully covered up <laughs> so no one touched me. I looked after my plants, but ultimately that's why I re I knew insects were important. I wished I didn't have a phobia. Then I had a child, and I was like, oh, I've got to get over this. This is I can't be a gardener who's scared of insects. Um, but yeah, the secret garden. I've read it I so many times, and you know, I just think that that book is. I come back to it constantly like the power of nature the importance of nature is threaded through everything I've ever written um, and it's because of that book so that's definitely uh, there and the twits by Roald Dahl I mean is one <laughs> I think of the funniest spectacularly uh, perfect grotesque almost Dickensian in its characters of Mr and Mrs Twitch but it's it's funny and a lot of people dismiss it as like not one of his greats but I my parents were getting a divorce when I read the twits when I was quite young and it was spectacularly messy uh, and they hated each other but we didn't have any money my dad had been bankrupt we had to live together they loathed one another and reading the twits gave me like a humorous lens to see their hatred of one another uh, and like, you know, obviously, I wished my mum had put spaghetti in my dad's pasta. She never did. But like I it gave me the permission almost to laugh at them and put them at a distance and see them as the two grotesque adults in their little battle that had nothing to do with me. It, it enabled me not to feel like it was my fault and it enabled me to laugh at them. And uh, I think it's a piece of genius. Like, that's, you know, that's such a powerful thing to give a child. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to, to show you that, you know, adults are just ridiculous and stupid and petty and ugly at times and do wildly like childish things, which obviously the twits do. Uh, and my love of the twits is uh, immortalized in Pickering and Humphrey and Beetle Boy and the ensuing books, oh, because yeah. they are two cousins who loathe each other, but they are forced to live with each other out of this stubbornness that they've both inherited this property and neither one will let the other have it so they 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 live in abject torture because they just make each other's lives a misery and it's very funny um so yeah they're my homage to the twits i love uh, that book it really i think laughing at adults is something that kids should be able to do um absolutely so yeah, they're, they're the two i mean i've read and I could I could go on for hours like you know I read all the Ina Blytons I was George from the famous five like the, the, <laughs> I read Pippi Longstocking I wanted to be able to lift a horse like I hard identified with so many characters but I think those two particular books really are in my DNA. I'm so interested in what you're saying about the twits and that the twits gave you that that gift of being able to put your parents and what was what was going on for your parents at a distance and realize because I think it's so rare for a child to realize that it's nothing to do with you and that you can laugh at them and that there's a whole complicated adult world going on that you can't fix and you can't get engaged yeah. in and that's, and cruel, that's beyond and powerful I'm the oldest of well I've, I'm the oldest of four from my parents and then I've got step siblings my family is a whole mess but I'm the oldest one so I was always the proxy grown-up so my mm -hmm. parents would be behaving like atrocious human beings and I'd be looking after all the other children and I that's the thing I think that's probably one of the reasons why I never felt responsible because I would be desperately trying to like feed my brothers and sisters and do all the grown-up stuff and be looking over my shoulder at them thinking like will you two just grow up like what is what is going on? Like, why am I doing this? You know, so, um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a gift, that book, and I love it. <laughs> and I think you're right. I think it's really underrated and people don't give it the credit 
that it's clearly due. I wish I'd read the twits at, at a similar age. I think it would have helped me a lot. <laughs> we love it here. My little girl will be read that book all the time. She thinks it's hilarious. So I do understand why the twits doesn't get the attention that I think it deserves, because look at the canon. I mean, the invention of the chocolate factory is incredible. The selfish, the selfish, not the selfish giant, that's Oscar Wilde. The BFG, <laughs> the unselfish giant, is fantastic and as an imaginative creation. I mean, I understand why the twits gets overlooked, but I read all of those and loved them. But the twits was the one that I read again and again that resonated with me. Yeah. I think we all have a we all have our old child that resonates with them. I think the BFG was mine when I was when I was young. Although I loved Matilda as well, um, the twist wasn't wasn't one of my favourites. But I'm having I'm seeing I'm reviewing it in a in a totally different light now and seeing seeing depths in it that I didn't realise were there until now. So thank you for for uh, giving me that <laughs> that perspective. <laughs> were there any stories or books that turned you into a writer? Because you loved books, you were an avid reader, but you weren't a writer. So what when did the writing happen, or were there books yeah. or stories that this is where I will sound uh, like a highbrow idiot, put it that way. Um, <laughs> we love highbrow idiots here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's what we, we are. <laughs> exactly. The writer, the writer that turned me into a writer was Shakespeare. Oh, um, wow. And I, so I had a funny uh, relationship with Shakespeare. When I was little, uh, like 10 years old, uh, I joined my local village amateur dramatic society uh, and it was the first time I'd ever had anything to do with theatre and I loved it oh my goodness I loved it uh, and I wanted always wanted the lead parts and I just ah I loved being on a stage and performing it was my favourite thing to step out of myself and be someone else um, and when I was about 10 my local amateur dramatic society decided it was going to do a production of Macbeth I'd never heard of it. I didn't know who Shakespeare was, obviously. Um, and uh, there was this bonkers director. I think his name was Bill. Bill, I'm, I want to say Bill Bailey, but he's a comedian, so <laughs> I feel like that's wrong. But his name was Bill. Uh, he was Scottish. He had mad red hair. He stank of bo, and he spat when he spoke. And he was so impassioned that he often would turn purple. Like he was a very memorable figure. Um, and I went to auditions thinking, oh, I want a lead role in this one. I wonder what I could be. Uh, and all the children turned up and he was like, right, you've, you've all got a part. You don't need to audition. You've all got a part. And I was like, what? But you're good to see my skills, my stardom. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, uh, you're all witches. And I was like, well, I quite like the idea of being a witch. And what he did is he created like almost like a Greek chorus for the witches. Uh, there was about... 30 of us so there was lots of uh, women uh, and all of the children and he divided us into three parts uh, so I was uh, the third witch but basically so there were like you know 12 other third witches um, and he taught us all of the witch parts as if we were a choir he'd make us stand like a choir and we'd all learn it by rote uh, and I didn't understand that Shakespeare was difficult or anything about Shakespeare I just knew that I'd have to go to rehearsals and stand with all these other people and learn when we shall we three meet again and thunder and he'd conduct us under lightning or in rain when the hurly burly so I know the entire witches <laughs> off my heart for the whole play and then he would be like okay you're witch three so when I point at you you do that line uh, and so then we broke into our three witches and then he would allow uh, each witch in third witch to be given like the first half of a sentence or the second half of a sentence. And then his big uh, directorial idea, which I still think is genius, and I've worked at the National Theatre, um, <laughs> was that uh, his the cauldron was a hole in the apron that was in a village hall and that had this little proscenium arch apron that came out and he had a hole in it. And he wanted all of the witches literally to writhe around the entire theatre all the time. But when it was a witch's scene, we would all kind of like shimmy along the floor like weird kind of animals and come up through the hole in the stage through the cauldron. And all the witch's lines came from everywhere and nowhere. Oh, but we all knew the rhythm. It was like we learned it like music. Uh, and it, I knew it was special because when audience saw it, I could feel 
the, the, in that village hall, I could feel the impact of this play. And I, it was my favorite thing that I did as a young person. I absolutely loved it. And I felt like, I didn't know who Shakespeare was, but Shakespeare was definitely my jam. Like I was big into Shakespeare and I knew nearly a third of the play off by heart. So I was like, cool. Then I went to secondary school where they killed Shakespeare for most children. Oh, no. And yeah, I was the kid in the class who people came to, and bearing in mind my written work was terrible, they would come to me, we'd do much of do about nothing, and they'd be like, I don't understand any, what is going on? And I'd be like, oh, look, in this scene, it's really obvious. It goes like this, and I would read it out in the rhythm, and I would explain what would happen, and I would help all the other children. And I was known as the girl who was good at Shakespeare. And that was kind of my identity at school, was Shakespeare and the theatre lover. Like, I definitely leaned hard into that. And I thought, I can't write, but I can speak and I understand the language and I can read and I love it. So I'm going to be an actor when I grow up. I'm going to be in theatre and then I won't have to write anything. I'll just read lots of stuff and say it. And that will be fantastic because um, I've always loved stories. It never occurred to me at any point until uh, I worked at Shakespeare's Globe that I could be a writer because I was text tested for dyslexia I was tested for all sorts of things uh, and they just came back to me and said no you're just lazy and rubbish at writing uh, over and over again I was told uniformly I couldn't spell I used to spell things phonetically but and I'm again one of my cod philosophy uh, ideas but I have a very fast functioning brain when I get excited my ideas really speed through my head very very fast and have a very slow hand and when I was at school my hand mm -hmm. would try to keep up with my thoughts and so what I wrote was a mess I now touch type I taught myself touch typing in my 20s I can sit and close my eyes imagine a scene and my fingers will hammer out that scene into a rough draft fast uh, I don't have to write with a pen anymore um, so that really, I think, gave me the mistaken idea that I was not a writer. But when I went to work at Shakespeare's Globe, I discovered a fact that blew my mind, which is that there are only two written um, pieces of Shakespeare's actual handwriting in existence. Uh, one of them is his will, which he had to sign on every page. And the other one is uh, one speech, one soliloquy from one of his very late plays. And they've done handwriting analysis tests on, and they've matched it to the handwriting that he signed his will. And they are pretty 98% sure that this is his handwriting. They're the only two bits of writing that we have. In his will, Shakespeare signed his name on every page and he spelt his own name differently. It's Shakespeare, it's Shakespeare. It's like he never spelled his own name the same way. And in the one page that we have of his written work, he does not use any punctuation. Spelling is fluid. He doesn't use capital letters at the beginning of every sentence, but he sometimes puts them in the middle of words. There's no continuity at all. And it was that realization in my early thirties that the writer who is considered to be one of the greatest writers in the history of mankind never spelt consistently or used any form of grammar when he wrote his work. Those things were all implemented later by editors. That, uh, it just made me think, well, everything I was taught at school was rubbish. Like, that's not what you need to tell a great story. If Shakespeare didn't need it, then, I could try and tell a story and ignore those things and then fix those things afterwards. I mean, obviously Shakespeare didn't have word processing machines that tell you when you've spelt something wrong and all that kind of stuff. But I realized this hang up that I had that I wasn't a writer, that I couldn't write, uh, was a nonsense that I had taken on because of the way teachers had talked to me at school. Uh, and that so I I've ever since Macbeth I've clung to Shakespeare and he's the reason why I am a writer. <laughs> well, I feel yeah. like applauding after that. Oh my goodness me! What yeah. a brilliant, brilliant story! Or like what a brilliant 
realization to come to oh my gosh and you're absolutely right I'm a former medievalist one of my old in my old life so I was you know I'm, I'm completely aware of all that as you're saying it's completely true there was no spelling conventions there were no grammatical conventions I mean you know texts from the middle ages can be spelled any old way and I'm you know and Shakespeare you're right you know he did spell his name or his name is spelled even in, in sources in completely different ways every time and it's so true it's so true and yet, the magic of the yet, text and Yeats yeah Yeats could not spell I think that's a that's such a freeing realization is that creativity has nothing to do with spelling or grammar or those kind of conventions yeah yeah, I have to be careful when I go into schools because I often like say that and kids are like, woohoo, and the teachers are like, no, no. <laughs> uh, and you know, but that's the thing that like, that's the thing that, because I'm still very insecure about my spelling, like at first drafts when I send them in, like I, I can't spell as well as, you know, a lot of people, like I, I get so excited in the image that I'm trying to capture in words that I don't stop for spelling accuracy and things like that. Um, and the, I, honestly, the, my love of theatre has really helped me because it was working in theatres that I learned that you can devise stories in groups, right? And you can, you never actually have to even write anything down. Like you can, and the, it's the whole kind of romantic notion of like a, a genius up in an ivory tower with the quill and like putting down a perfect sentence followed by a perfect sentence. And that really hampered me as a young person because I believed it I thought well, it's just well, I, another I that's just another story yeah it's not true it's a complete illusion it's absolute rubbish and but I believed it as a young person I thought well I don't have talent in this everyone tells me I don't have talent in this so I can't do this and I believed it for a really long time um so yeah I, I it's it's very freeing not to not well to know that education is a Victorian system that tried to create human beings that were all alike so that it could colonize the globe but actually a lot of the stuff <laughs> that we're learning is redundant in modern day and age and I learn a lot more from uh, going back before the Victorian time and looking at literature then I love uh, the early modern period it is my favorite period um, that's what I did my master's in um, and that's how I ended up working at the globe I did a master's there in Shakespeare studies uh, text and playhouse so um, so yeah, I, but Shakespeare honestly has rocked my world since I was 10. <laughs> and I also think that like, it's brilliant that you, your first encounter with Shakespeare was like coming from a place of kind of complete innocence. Like you didn't know that Shakespeare was hard. So you didn't experience Shakespeare as hard. What you experienced was like the joy in the aliveness and musicality of the language and the creativity of staging a Shakespeare yeah. play. Um, and then, yeah, when you get to secondary school, it's like people have this notion Shakespeare is difficult. So they experience it then as difficult. Yeah, also, like I learned all those words and still like I, I remember like learning like uh, all the witches speeches and it was like ditch delivered by a drab. I had no idea what that meant. I just said it because I had to learn it. And like, you know, with the tiger's children for the ingredients of our cold. I didn't know what tiger's children. I had no idea what was coming out of my mouth. I just had been taught to say it. And what shocked me, I think, when I got to secondary school was you got points for understanding it and knowing what it was. And I understood the verse on a really intrinsic physical level, but I didn't know exactly what a drab meant. You know, I, I it didn't know what these words meant but I got the feel of what it was like you know that you know I just ditch delivered by a drab I was thinking well if it's a baby born in a ditch maybe a drab is like a, a peasant or really muddy or like you know but I didn't I didn't have a dictionary and look it up and be able to answer it in an essay um, and of course I wasn't very good at writing essays because my handwriting was terrible and my spelling and grammar was awful so um you know it just I did I, I got to love Shakespeare before it was tested out of me. Mm. I think if I hadn't have done that play, I'd be a very different human and I probably wouldn't write stories now. So, yeah. Thanks, thank you, Shakespeare. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Bill. Thanks, William and Bill. I wonder, was Bill a reincarnation of Shakespeare? He sounds like the kind of man who really, he really understood what Shakespeare yeah. was trying to get at, I think. I hope he went on to win awards for his stagecraft because he sounds like an absolutely 
gifted um that's like a what do they call them Dram- dramaturges is that what you call them when you when you yeah. when they arrange how, how a play is done he sounds brilliant i i would love to see that performance of macbeth sounds amazing Wow. Well done, Bill, if you're listening. Well done, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've given us the wonderful MG and Leonard and all our work. Thank you. Um, and do you have any, like when you sit down to write a book or when you think about a story that you're going to write, do you have any sort of hope of how your stories might shape readers that might encounter your work? And may I, does, that, does, that ever, does that ever enter your head or is it something well, you do? Yeah, I yourself? mean, with, with, so I... This is going to sound a bit weird, but like I don't think I'm a very good writer because I've always been told as a young person that I wasn't a good writer. We're here to tell you you are. (laughs) (laughs) If I really, really care about my subject, like personally, uh, I feel like the subject matter requires me to step up like and be better than I am. And one of the things that I realised, because I did fall in love with Beatles, like, I mean, I've written a lot of book about Beatles now, so it's obvious I love them, but I really fell in love with them and the importance of them and got very angry about the injustice that people mm-hmm. didn't know how important these insects were. And the fire I had in me to sp- spread that uh, and made me think like, I can't just write an ordinary story. Like I have to write something that is still gonna be on the bookshelves in 20 years time. That means I'm competing with Roald Dahl and, Francis Hodgson Burnett and like because there's only a certain amount of space like it has to be not just okay or good it has to be the best book about Beatles that's ever going to be written in the history of children's literature that was the kind of pressure I put on myself when I wrote those books and they were never about me and they were never about me trying to prove I could write it was can I do this subject matter justice can I weave facts and a compelling story together well enough that kids who hate insects want to find out what happens next and despite themselves really get upset when a beetle dies at the end of the first book like can I can I do that it was it it took me 10 years to write Beetle Boy because I really gave myself a very very high bar Um, Mm. and so that that drive drove me through all of those books and similarly with uh twitch i made a mistake in beetle boy and my mother-in-law who twitch is uh is uh dedicated to sadly died just before the pandemic so she never got to read it but she was a headmistress of a primary school and uh she loved the beetle boy books and she was very proud of me and i said to her one day like you know if there's anything that you could change like is there any is there anything that nickels you is there anything that you think isn't good enough you know and she said well yes and i was like what <laughs> what do you mean i've won once and everyone loves me what do you mean this stuff she's like well she's like in beetle boy there are these bullies that bully darkest and they're the first ones that call him beetle boy and she said they're bullies in book one, book two, and book three. They never learn, they never progress, they never evolve, and you don't share the wonder of Beatles with those children. And that's disappointing to me because I don't believe that there's any such thing as a bully. There's only bullying behavior, and there's always a context attached to that. I don't think you were fair to those boys. And I was like, oh, she's right. She's really right. And that kind of realization is where Twitch was born from, because in that story, uh, it was readers of Beetle Boy who basically kept asking me if I could write about bird watching, and I was like, no, I look down, I don't look up at birds, I look in the mud and the undergrowth, I don't look up at all. Um, but as the idea for that story was coming together, I could just hear her voice in my head saying, like. And I was thinking, if I write about a boy who loves birds, just like I wrote about a boy who loves beetles, I am not going to make the same mistake again. And in fact, that's what this book is going to be about. And so in writing Twitch, um, and also my, because my uh, my mother-in-law died of uh, geoblastoma, she had brain cancer. Um, I was very driven by an emotional need to create something that she would have been proud of. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I didn't finish it until after she passed away, but she's in every aspect of that story. And so the reason why I think that book has 
really chimed with lots of people is again I pushed myself beyond what I thought my ever, nothing was ever good enough I had to really work on it over and over again to really find the heart in that story and not just make it a story that's about bird watching it really needed to be about a lot more than that mm-hmm. uh, and so I think I think with each it's not it's not a desire or an influence or a, uh, an aspiration to be like another story or to do something like another story's done it's often an emotional drive that comes from me that I really want to create these stories for a reason. Adventures on Trains comes from the fact that my boys were really reluctant readers, something that really upsets me because I have found such joy in reading as a, as a child and a grown-up. Um, and they loved Thomas the Tank Engine when they were little. And then when they got to the kind of chapter book age, uh, they weren't interested in what was on offer. You know, they they liked the kind of Tom Gates type books where it was about school because they could relate to that, but they never really wanted fantasy or anything like that. But they had this huge knowledge and vocabulary about trains that Thomas the Tank Engine had given them. And there was nothing to follow on from that. So I felt the need in creating those books to do those children who loved Thomas and had that vocabulary, give them something to keep reading. Uh, So each of the things that I've created has come from a desire to make those stories exist for children in a way that serves those readers as well as I can. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really draw from any other fiction writers when I do that. I really focus on the inspiration for the story and the readers. Um, but saying that, I mean, you can't see, I'm in my office right now and right in front of me is literally a wall of nonfiction everything you can possibly imagine I've got above my desk I've got books on insects I've got books <laughs> on birds eggs I mean I've got a whole wall of non-fiction in front of me including some of the stuff that I used to read when I was little this is what to look for in autumn a ladybird book what surprises me is just how much detail and, and uh, uh, natural information went into children's books in the 70s and mm. doesn't nowadays no like, the 70s were such an amazing time for children's books fiction yeah. and non-fiction yeah those so, the original uh, ladybird books were so yeah. beautiful and yeah yeah. yeah yeah so non-fiction is my jam when it comes to inspiration uh for twitch this book a short philosophy of birds this was hugely uh influential uh particularly in the way it talks about how chickens really enjoy a dust bath because they live in the moment and oh and so there was <laughs> Can I say that the chicken, Twitch's chicken, has the best name in the world. He is called, or she is called, Egg Bum. And I just, I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) That came came from a kid, because like, literally, there was this little cute little toddler. um, uh, It wasn't one of my kids, sadly, but I was at, you know, you take your kids to those uh, farms where you can petting zoos, basically. Oh, yeah farm with like a goat and some chickens and like a cow uh, and uh, one of the little kids was going egg bomb it's egg bomb and I was like oh I'm writing that down you know that just yeah egg bomb that is brilliant I love it <laughs> it is a great name um and if I can ask the cheeky question that I like to ask when we're coming to the end of our interview um if you can share with us what's next from you in terms of upcoming projects if you can if stuff is not uh, under embargo or whatever no, so I. <laughs> I have had oh, just a year. I've written five books in the past 12 months. Oh, okay. my God. And okay. I mean, yeah. do you sleep? I mean, Maya, or Maya, do you sleep? I, uh, I can't understand this. <laughs> I am tired. I, I have yeah. had, the, as you know, as authors, um, the idea that you can make a living out of writing is a joke. <laughs> Royalties are True. a joke. Like the, it's very difficult to make a living. Uh, And I am very lucky, I'm right in the very tiny few percentage of people that can make a living out of their work. I don't make a wealthy living, sorry to all the children out there who think we're millionaires, we are not. Uh, But I can make a living out of writing. But I had this really weird, interesting phase towards the end of Beetle Boy. uh, I pitched a couple of ideas that I thought were chef's kiss uh to my publishers and 
they all shot them down. Uh, and it was interesting because people just wanted me to keep writing Beatles. That's all they wanted. That's what she does. She's the Beatle lady. She can write about Beatles. And I was like, I want to write about trains, but I can't do it on my own. But my mate, Sam, who I work with at the National, knows those about trains. So we're going to write about trains together. No, I was told you should not write with an unknown. You should only write with uh, an author with a name as as like successful as your own this is going to destroy your career you know no one connects you to trains like that's a terrible idea don't do it it'll be awful and then the other thing was the ice children uh, which is actually published today on audible's platform um, which is a contemporary fairy story kind of drawing on oscar wilde's fairy stories the selfish giant um and there's a bit of pinocchio in there and hans christian anderson's the snow queen and but it's very it's set now and uh uh and i had the idea for that and it starts off really quite dark uh don't worry everyone it ends and none of my stories ever end badly they're always mm. a happy ending but uh, it's a very complex subject matter and again I was told no no no, no. people don't want that that's going to be depressing don't write that write more Beatles and I did a very brave thing that felt very terrifying at the time which is I ignored everyone who said don't do that uh and uh I even actually gave back an advance because uh, I had uh, a, a publisher had the option on the next thing and they gave me advance on it when I uh, wrote the first idea that I had for the ice children they were like no and I was like here's your money back like which I couldn't afford to do at the time but there you go um, and and I continued on uh, so I had one year 2019 where I didn't publish anything but I was writing everything uh, and I had the, the fear the terror that my second project wouldn't land um, because people had said no one wants that from you don't do that with an unknown this is like not a good idea but I knew that my boys would read those stories like I knew that there were kids out there that wanted those books right so I just thought well I'll ignore the publishers I've worked with so far and I'll write it I'll write the whole thing and I'll polish it up and I'll see so I worked incredibly hard to get the Highland Falcon Thief with Sam to into a really good stage and it went out and it was auctioned it went for a good amount of money and my publishers committed to four books straight out of the gates which is almost unheard of in a series and uh Macmillan have done an incredible job with adventures of books yeah they really are yeah and kids love them I was right <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know that I was right uh, and the Highland Falcon Thief came out and Covid came literally two months later and shut the world down and I was very lucky because uh, the train books have actually sold through Covid because I think children really loved going on adventures in other countries when they were trapped in their homes and unable to travel and there's cozy crime books for kids but travel fiction as well um so they did well throughout covid but i was scared that they would that it, that wouldn't happen i was scared that the prophecy of doom that had been told to me was right so i signed every contract anyone mm -hmm. Oh, would you like to write a book on yep 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 I said yes to absolutely everything which is why I've ended up writing five books in 12 months I will never do it again however most of those stories um you know it was amazing to me that Audible really loved Ice Children and wanted to develop that with me and so I wrote I rewrote that whole story so that it's really rich with sound uh you know for Audible it's a fully staged full cast like there's at least I think eight children in the cast uh it's magical with music and sound effects and everything and I've got every wild thing you could possibly put in something I've got an animal orchestra all playing different musical instruments I've got so much audio in there um so yeah, all of these opportunities all kind of came at once. And I just thought, well, I can't afford to not do them. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, so this year has been, I mean, my poor husband, bless him, is like next year, you are never, never doing this again. Cause I've barely seen my children this year. I haven't had a weekend. I will get, this is, I have an office that I work in outside my home. Um, Cause we also had to move house twice this year. So I would get to work at like, six and I would be here till midnight seven days a week and I have been writing 
like a whirling dervish for this year. Um, I obviously have written two books in the Twitcher series. Clutch, which is the third book that's set in spring, comes out next April. Um, I hand in the final manuscript of that just on Monday. Um, Ice Children, as I said, is live today. That's the Audible Christmas treat for subscribers, but you can also uh, purchase it if you're not a subscriber for, I think, £7, price of a book. But Macmillan will publish the print version of that story in a year's time once Audible have had it um, as an exclusive for a year. Um, so, yeah, I've got two more bird books to deliver. The train series has now come to an end with the Arctic Railway Assassin that was only published three weeks ago. <laughs> um, so uh, and then hopefully I'll have uh, an opening in my imagination for something new to come yeah. um, and excited about that. And I have lots of projects that I've slowly developed over the years that I might work on. Um, but I'm not quite sure what, which way I'm going to step. And that feels quite lovely to me after being in a tunnel of productivity. Uh, I need exciting. to, yeah, yeah I That's need to be a sponge. You, you, know, you need to be a sponge. You need a big yeah. break. You need to just fill the cup again. Refill yeah. your well. Exactly. Yeah. Gosh, goodness me. Well, I mean, I'm sorry that you've had such a, an intense uh, schedule for the past Gosh, years, it sounds like. But I mean, but thank you as a reader uh, for all the wonderful work that you've put out. But I know I'm um, lucky. I mean, that's, yeah. don't you find this like, you know, like I know that I'm I'm lucky that people want me to write books. You're lucky, it's, but also you are you work really hard. I, I do work. I do work really hard. So you work hard. You deserve it. Thank you. That's very kind. But I also think that uh, I'm always amazed by uh, people who write children's books but have no children don't really hang out with children sometimes don't even like children but they want to be a children's author because when they were young they read Philip Pullman and they thought they wanted to be that or they went you know I, I I'm always baffled by those people because they should be writing for their own age group why would you want to write for children if you don't know children that I find odd because I could probably be a lot more literary and fancy with my words, but I would write something that children wouldn't want to read. And I would much rather like try and tell the best story for children that I can. Um, I think that's that's the driving thing. I always think, gosh, I can't write something mediocre because a child will, if it, this might be the first thing they ever read. And if it puts them off, like that's such a weight to bear and I know because my boys used to start books and be like oh books are boring this is not for me um so yeah I tr I try and remember every reluctant reader needs to find the book that you know they see themselves in and uh that will be in the heart of their rock if you cut them in half their stick of rock <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> um, I know I know that your books are going to be the heart of so many so many children um they're just they're just absolutely gorgeous may I could we could talk to you forever <laughs> so we, fantastic. To, but, we have to wrap up <laughs> yeah unfortunately this conversation has to come to an end although I do not want it to um this has been an absolute pleasure and a joy and you've given us so many words of wisdom there's been so much richness in this conversation I, I I've loved what you said about about Shakespeare. I loved what you said about The Secret Garden and how much The Secret Garden meant to you. The Secret Garden is a book that it's meant so much to me and Sinead, I think for you as well. It yeah, appeared it in mm -hmm. um, uh, The Star Spin <laughs> Web. It did, yeah. But I, I do love the book myself, yeah. Gosh, but uh, yeah, but for today, we better, we better say goodbye and thank you. But I mean, gosh, as Susan says, Oh, if we had if we had five hours to talk to you, uh, May, we, we would. It's it's been it's been amazing. Thank you. Well, uh, so I did much. warn you on the email. I'm a terrible chatterbox as well. I'm a real talk. Not at all. That's <laughs> everything everything you've said has been just spot on and and so gold. interesting. Absolute gold. Absolute gold. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, let me encourage you all to go and listen to the Ice Children because I like yes. I was listening to it this morning and I honestly it made me cry and it's 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 oh. weird. I've been trying to get that story out of me for like four years uh, and to hear it, to hear children saying my, oh. my words is just, oh, I can't, I that cannot tell be, you. So that must proud. be amazing. must be amazing. It, yeah. it sounds like it's like drawing on all your talents and all your experience. 
sounds like the perfect yeah. output for your what, what you've put into your life and I'm even in it so I that when, when I when they when they cast it I said look I I am a trained actor is there any way that <laughs> I, I can I can have a cameo yes. yeah and they were like oh gosh which part do you want I could hear just the oh no she wants to be in her own book uh, and there's a character which is a reindeer that um is uh like I can't really explain. There's a reindeer called Pordis uh, in uh, a very special place called Winterton, and I am the reindeer. And <laughs> it's a very small little cameo, but uh, yeah, you listen out for me. <laughs> Surely you will. Um, yeah, we're recording uh, in kind of in mid November, so um, by the time this episode does go live, uh, that the the ice, the ice children will be available um, on Audible. So quickly go out and get it, um, and all Bye of my books because they are fantastic. Um, but for that, for this, we'll have to say goodbye for our podcast. And I'm really sorry to say goodbye um, because this has been a fantastic episode. And if you've enjoyed it as much as we have, please, I would ask you to to rate and review us, uh, share the episode with uh, all all your friends, enemies, neighbours, compatriots, whoever you want to share it with. Um, anybody who you think would enjoy hearing people talk about the brilliance of stories and how powerful they are and how powerful uh, they are to shape us into the people that we are destined to become. Um, it has been a pleasure and a privilege to speak to Maya Leonard today, MG Leonard. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, but until next week, we should say goodbye. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real. You're very pleasure. welcome. It's 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 our privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much. Um, but it's goodbye from me for now. Goodbye and from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me too. <laughs> until next week, story shapers. Adios. Bye. <laughs> Bye. You have been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Mm-hmm.